Okay, welcome back. We are continuing our journey through the modern world, what I'm calling liquid modernity, and we're doing a Christian response to it. And just to um, give you a sense of where we're going, um, so as, as I've been formulating this, we're going to work through some of some key texts from some modern Christian intellectuals um, and kind of just work through them one by one using the philosophical texts of these writers and then fleshing it out using uh, literature. I'm a literature professor, so I'm going to use literary examples and examples from the history of art to illustrate the ideas in the uh, philosophy. So we'll work through Alistair McIntyre after virtue. We'll work through Jamie Smith. Um, he's got a, a couple of books, well, more than a couple, but one of them is called Desiring the Kingdom and then Imagining the Kingdom. We're going to work through Charles Taylor, his 900-page book. I'm not going to read all of it, um, but it's called A Secular Age from 2007. So we've been gifted with these wonderful texts by these great Christian intellectuals of the 21st century, and most people don't have access to them. So that's my goal is to make them more accessible, give people a quick and dirty intro into the ideas, and to see that our moment being a secular age, being an after virtue society, being a liquid modern present is actually awesome. It's uniquely set up for the Christian intellectual to enter in and to shed tremendous light on a very impoverished public space, impoverished in terms of its language, in terms of its concept concepts. And so um, we're in a good situation, people, um, those of us who are Christian. And even if you're not Christian, please make use of these ideas as you progress in the world. So let me um, talk about a movie for a second. And Enchanted, the movie's called Enchanted, starring Amy Adams a few years ago. And it's the story of a fairy tale princess who shows up in modern Manhattan. Kind of a crazy premise. Awesome premise. It's a really good movie, actually. Uh, very entertaining. But besides being entertaining, it's a kind of meditation on what the enchanted world is and how the after virtue world is disenchanted and how. Like it looks so weird when you see this fairy tale princess walking through the streets of New York City in modern New York and then hanging out even, I mean, instead of hanging out with beautiful uh, fluffy birds and, and, and animals in the woods, like in a Disney movie, she hangs out with the animals with, that are at her side, which are cockroaches and pigeons and rats. And it's this funny scene. So let me... Um, share my screen and show you those who are viewing this, what, um, what happens in this quick scene and maybe you'll even be able to hear it uh, if the technology co cooperates. But here's a little scene of the, of the cleaning song, the working song 
where Amy Adams, the, the fairy tale princess, is having to clean up the house or the apartment. And just like a fairy tale princess in a Disney movie, she enlists the help of the animals. And so I'll just pause it there, but you have a scene where you have uh, the fairy tale princess singing the happy work working song, like out of a Cinderella movie. And you have cockroaches coming out of the drain in the, in the, in the tub, cleaning the tub for her. You have rats cleaning up, you have pigeons cleaning up and, and different bugs and things. And, and it's absurd and, and we laugh because it's very funny. But this is a nice reflection on what it would mean to live in ancient times or in the middle ages when we would have had a, um, an enchanted world. And or if, if you are um, willing to be in the enchanted world today as a Christian or as, as some other religion, to see the world as a place that's not bereft of spirit, that's not just pure material empirical reality, but is spirit and matter always together always already united and and that um, there's a kind of magic not magic in a literal sense but there's this enchantment enchantment means magic or that's one of the meanings of it and so um, um, and I want to review what we did last time in talking about a transference from the ancient world to the axial age to the enlightenment or the modern world, the after virtue world. And um, from the ancient times, you had this culture of virtues. The virtues were of strength, of loyalty to tribe, hero defeats the enemy, honor, which moved forward into the axial age, which was about 800 to 200 BCE and Confucius, um, Socrates, Plato, Buddha, and various figures, and I'm going to lump Jesus in there, he's a later figure, but of the same ilk, developed a much more philosophical and abstract approach to, to virtue. And this we could call it the virtue age, or um, the age focused on the virtues. That's what Alistair McIntyre is when he, when he talks about after virtue. The axial age was the beginning of the virtue-based age or an age focused on virtue ethics, and an enchanted age, an, en an enchanted age where humans had a clear sense of being open to the spiritual, to the transcendent, to things which were outside the material world. In fact, that the material world came from, or was in fact created by God who comes outside of the world. Transfer that from the axial age, middle ages, to the enlightenment, and you continue having some of the axial virtues, but you reject some of the self-sacrifice, some of the humility in favor of fullness by technology and control. We control nature. We control human nature ultimately. And then the world becomes disenchanted and, and loses its magic. And so that's why we have the, that's why it's so weird to see a, a fairy tale princess in New York City, in the modern world. 
So um, moving from the enchanted world to the disenchanted world, let me talk then for a second about how this affects morality. Um, and in the enchanted, which is the ancient and medieval world, the virtue-based world, spirit and matter are always united. We do not seek to dominate the world. We respect the world. Um, and I work for self-mastery. I work to order myself rightly. I want to limit myself. I want to discipline myself. That's freedom. I am a steward of nature. Whereas in the disenchanted world, which comes in the 1500s and beyond up to today, um, we have a, a figure I'm going to refer to in a second. I've referred to him before, A.J. Ayer, the moral philosopher of logical positivism. And it's called logical positivism because it's focused, focused purely on logic and only on what is positive, only what you can empirically, materially measure. And if you can't measure it, it's not real. It's a faith. It's fake. It's not, it's not true. It's a lie. Um, in this mode, in this after virtue mode, this, en this enchanted mode, I, I want to dominate the world because humans are independent from nature and from God and from the transcendent. And so it's our world. We dominate it. We even shape what it means to be human. There is no human nature that I'm inheriting. And so that leads, that can lead into different directions. It can lead into eugenics with like the Nazis where they were trying to control the gene pool. It can lead into transhumanism where we're putting technology into the human body itself, into, into DNA or into, into different parts of our body. We're just merging the, the machine with the human to create the next human, sort of like superhuman via technology, or making designer babies, which is in some ways already here. And absolute freedom in this disenchanted world paradoxically leads not to freedom for everybody, but to some humans dominating others. Because I'm, if I'm in charge of the world, if I'm human dominating the world, that means I'm dominating human nature. That means I'm going to be dominating other people because you're designing your own, your own race. Um, for those who have access, I have an image here, a Rembrandt painting of, of a dissection of a human being, a dead, a dead human being. So that's good. Um, and this is a good thing to do. We do, we do this in medical schools where we cut open dead people and, and look at them to study them, to understand how the human body works. And, and uh, the doctor there is cutting open the arm and looking at the tendons and the muscles and the bones. And the various other figures are, are watching very attentively. And this is great. This is, this is proper. This is what happens in the modern world. We, we dominate nature in this sense. There's nothing wrong with this. This is very good, actually. This gives us tremendous knowledge and, and tremendous capacity to help ourselves through, through medicine. But... The, the danger here is that we try to understand human as a purely material being. But if you, if you understand the human as a purely material being, what are you left with? A cadaver. And so we can't um, simply 
base our knowledge of what humans are or animals are for that matter or nature is by cutting it open and killing it that's not the real human or animal or, or plant we need to understand the living human being and so this means that um let me share my screen for those who can um there's my my image here of uh, rembrandt rembrandt's painting of of the dissecting doctor um and i'm gonna contrast that in a second with a painting by vincent van gogh which i think is a pretty good portrayal of an enchanted world it's the uh, wheat field with cypresses cypress trees uh, a famous painting with this beautiful golden field of, of grain and these fiery flames of trees going up and the sky is just alive with color and and it's really an energetic moving image it, and it's it, it's an art, artistic portrayal of of the enchantment in reality that the reality isn't just material and through an artistic eye namely uh, van, vincent van gogh's he portrays that that enchantment that that quasi magic in in the world through his art um but let me make reference to logical positivism also uh, sometimes called exclusive humanism um here with aj ayer and he says this about morality quote if now i say stealing of money is wrong i produce a sentence which has no factual meaning that is expresses no proposition which can be either true or false it is as if i had written stealing money exclamation point exclamation point where the shape and thickness of the exclamation marks show by a suitable convention that a special sort of moral disapproval is the feeling which is being expressed unquote from his book language truth logic and let me comment on this quote because what ayer is saying is according to his approach which is an extreme version of it but it's useful because he spells it out nice and clearly here by his mode of thinking the only fact is that i said stealing money exclamation point exclamation point that the emotional part and the moral part isn't fact it's actually just emotion which means it's false or it's or it's neither, neither true nor false he says this is something that that expresses no proposition proposition which can be either true or false it's just like words which don't mean anything and show some kind of approval or disapproval of a feeling and so this is what we mean by logical positivism that only things material are real and factual and everything else is just myth or fable or feelings and 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 you can't base any real truth on it. and by this measure he's throwing out really almost all of moral philosophy in the traditional sense and certainly he's throwing out the virtue the virtue ethics approach developed in the axial age that we saw so that's the problem um but the good news is he's wrong the good news is that the world is not just material 
that it is enchanted. And um, as a Christian myself, I know that, or I feel that um, there are spiritual beings, God, angels, demons, and that even humans, and even to some extent animals and other, all creation has a kind of spiritual element to it. Again, thinking about Vincent van Gogh's painting, he, he expresses that. And we can sort of see that intuitively in the beauty of his paintings. They're not just a photographic um, factual representation of what's there. They include his emotional response, his wonder, his capacity to really philosophize and think about beauty. Um, how do you measure beauty like in terms of logical positivism? It's just a feeling, it's nothing real there. But beauty is real. Beauty is definitely real. Love is really, you can't measure love, but love is absolutely real and it's an essential part to morality. So let me think about getting towards the after virtue society for a second here. And let's talk about the 20th century for a second to sort of think, how did we get to where we are today in the 21st century? And, and you know, I've talked about the liquid modern world, this world where we're not setting up our house on solid ground, but it's more like quicksand. And it's like trying to set up my house and there's no stable structures or values to found it on. And so we're sort of forced into this hyper process of, of constantly trying to build. And we're focused on building the second floor, realizing without realizing that it's not gonna work because the first floor can't even stand up because of the quicksand that I'm building on. And so this is this kind of real sense of instability, loneliness, out of placeness, out of you, no, no feeling of being at home in the world that afflicts so many of us today, the, the liquid modern world. How did we get here? So part of it, and I'm, I'm drawing here partly on the thought of David Brooks, um, who's come up with a wonderful book called The Second Mountain, which I'll talk about some other day. But in his thought, he is really good at describing how we got here because he basically says this, with World War I, World War II in the 1950s in Europe and in the United States, North America, we had uh, a lot of crises. Millions of people, tens of millions, millions of people dying in wars, the Cold War, this real sense that we need to work together. So people pulled together, we had common goals, we were uh, fighting against Nazism, fighting against communism, and we're in this together was like the big theme. So people got really united and they kind of sacrificed their self for the group, for the common good. And, and you know, this is embodied in like the ethnic neighborhood of the 1950s. Um, there's a book called The Lost City, which talks about these neighborhoods in, in Chicago and their eth urban ethnic neighborhoods, like the African-American neighborhood and the Italian neighborhood, the Polish neighborhood, and how the people really pulled together and life was very woven together with a thick weave of relationships in the neighborhood, among the families, among the people, especially through the churches and, and the synagogues. And 
life was conducted from the front stoop uh, in the sense that um, people hung out on the front stoop and you'd see the kids running from house to house and people lived close to each other. So, and you'd go over to your neighbors and borrow something and, and they'd come over and borrow something from you and people would help each other fix their cars. And there was a very unified um, culture in the neighborhood. And, and that's what um, the author, Alan Ehrenholt, calls the lost city. And there were some negatives, obviously, you know, there was conformity, over-conformity. Women were feeling stifled, uh, just, you know, without a chance for, for developing their careers and this kind of thing. So not that everything was great, but one of the great things was just the, the thick, warm set of relationships and, and institutional structures in the neighborhoods and in cities, which people felt at home, people felt connected, people didn't feel isolated and alone like they do today. Okay, Re reacting against that in the 1960s with the anti-war movement and the summer of love and rock and roll, people rejected all that conformity and conformism. People said, be your authentic self, be a rebel. You had rebel without a cause and, and James Dean and all this. And the, the primary story that was told was a story of liberation liberate yourself from oppression liberate others from oppression and there was a lot of good there i mean there was there were actual liberations from oppression liberation from racism the change from racism the civil rights movement and so forth there were very positive developments there developments with women's rights but that was the 1960s in the 21st century now this has been playing out for over 50 years and it's gone on to an extreme and we have a hyper individualist society and we have too much isolation, too much rejection of the structures. And now we're sort of starved for institutions. We're starved for those social structures that helped people have that, that warm, thick network of relationships they had in earlier times, in that earlier time period. So now we've gone to the opposite extreme. We're starved. We want those, I want those, and then some of you want those too. Um, and many of us would benefit from a more stable sense of self and sense of community. And in response to this as well, we have a new puritanism of progress. And it's no longer fashionable to be in favor of freedom of speech because you might be in danger of promoting some kind of oppression. And so there's a constant um, refrain on both the right and on the left of outrage. That's the constant thing you hear in the news, in the pundits, in, in, um, in, in the late night TV. Late night TV has gotten, it's not funny anymore because people are getting too damn serious, pardon my French. And, and then you have the fact of comedians are getting in trouble because they can't make jokes about anything anymore without being um, accused of being racist or, or whatever. And so comedians, do you know what they're doing today? They basically don't even come to campuses. They don't even come to, to universities because it's not worth it. They're gonna get sued. They're gonna get um, attacked for trying to make jokes about things. So we've got this kind of hyper uh, puritanism of progress and we've got to push for progress. Otherwise uh, we, we might, you know, lose it. And so this is 
our ongoing struggle. So I'm going to turn to poetry to, to um, make some sense of this and specifically the poetry of William Wordsworth, um, British poet of the late 1700s, early 1800s, wonderful poet. And he has this poem called The World is Too Much With Us, where he describes kind of the beginnings of the liquid modern world of the after virtual world, or specifically the disenchanted world, a world which has lost the magic of the enchantment because we're too focused on, as far as he's concerned, consumerism and buying stuff, getting and spending. So let me see if I can pull up the poem for those who can see this. Um, and I'll just read it. It's called The World is Too Much With Us, uh, William Wordsworth. <clears throat> the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, this winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not, great God. I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasantly, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. And let me focus on some of the passages here. Uh, the world is too much with us, meaning we are We've got too many things going on. We've got too many concerns of bills to pay and money to make and got to go to work, even though it's the weekend and this kind of thing. Getting and spending, laying waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. So nature, we've become alienated from nature. We used to have a kind of integration with nature that through spiritual realities, we could see the spirit infused in nature. In, in, in ancient and medieval times. But now in the modern world, in the commercial world, that's gone. The, the, the nature world is just what you can buy. You can buy this tree, you can buy this piece of land, but there's no connection to the land. There's no spirit in the woods, no spirit of the forest, this kind of thing. And so this is a crisis that um, he's talking about. Um, and just looking at um, this last part of the poem from Wordsworth, um, he says this kind of shocking thing. I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. I'd rather be a, a, a pre-Christian from some other creed, like an ancient Greek, let's say, who worships Zeus and Athena. Why does he say that? Because at least then I could see the spirit and the beauty and the wonder in nature. Um, I could see Proteus rising from the sea, this, this god. I could see, I could hear Triton blow his wreathed horn, this, this sea god blowing his horn. So when I'm hearing the, the sea crashing against the, uh, the coast, 
instead of just seeing something completely materialistic and explainable by matter and molecules, I can see, you know, something more eternal, something like the beauty of it expresses something much more uh, eternally valuable. Um, and so that's, that's what he's talking about. And, and that's what I'm talking about. Um, I don't want to be a, a pagan in a creed outworn. Um, that would be going back to the ancient times. I want to go back to more to the axial age ideas, actually. Um, uh, and in specifically in the Christian tradition for myself. And there is where I will see Proteus rising from the sea. I will look on nature and be, and be full of wonder and, be, and, and perceive the beauty and, and the eternal uh, patterns and so forth. I mean, when you see like a bunch of birds flying and being blown by the wind and the, and the wonderful patterns in the birds or, or the patterns in, in, the, in the, the wheat blowing in the wind like, like Van Gogh portrays in his paintings, those patterns are eternal patterns. We can see God's handiwork. We can see God's signature there in nature. We can see spiritual realities through beauty, through our perception of beauty. And in this, you know, I'm kind of drawing on Platonic ideas here. I think I like Plato a lot too, even though he was a pre-Christian, but a wonderful thinker, thinking about the eternal ideas, that we see the material reality, but we can see the, the eternal ideas which are behind those material realities, or the human body, you know, the hands and the ear and so forth that there's something more than just a material reality here. Um, and so that is Wordsworth. Um, let me then go and look at another poet. And this is the poem called The Windhover. I was gonna, gonna do God's Grandeur, which is another poem, but I'll do that another time. But the windhover is nice because it's about a, it's about a bird. The windhover is a bird that's native to Britain, where he was living. He was a Catholic priest who wrote these wonderful poems in the late 1800s, and it's kind of a weird poetry style uh, where he's drawing on actually medieval styles uh, from the Anglo-Saxon tradition and, and kind of updating them in this modern style. Um, he's celebrated by modern poets for that reason. He's really great at at um, combining different styles. The poem is, I'll just re read it here. It's um, got the phrase, to Christ our Lord at the beginning of it. Uh, that's his uh, dedication. And okay, let me read it. It's, it's a tricky read, so let me see if I can read it slowly here. I might have to read parts of it twice just so you get it because it's, as if the wording is very tricky, but here it is. I caught this morning's, Ah, I already screwed up. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon in his riding, of the rolling level underneath him steady air and striding, high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth, on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, 
the achieve of, the mastery of, the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act. Oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down cillion shine and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Whew. Okay. So what's going on in this poem? It's about a bird, uh, a windover, and he is stirred for a bird, as he says. My heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of, the thing, exclamation point. He's inspired by this bird. He sees a bird, but it's not just a bird. He's seeing this kind of life force expressing itself with incredible power and beauty. Um, he's got this um, very uh, alliterative verse. It's the kingdom of daylight's dolphin, dapple, dawn, drawn falcon, all those Ds in a row, um, creating this, this uh, nice, almost hyper uh, repetition of the letter D, um, kind of mimicking the, the sound of the, of the wings of the, of the bird as it's flying. Um, and it's, there, um, oh my chevalier, he, which is a, 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 um, a knight, he's, he's calling it a knight in shining armor. Um, and he's got the blue bleak embers, which are like when you have the embers of fire, they kind of, uh, they're going blue and bleak, but then they, they, they become vermilion again, the gash, gash gold vermilion. The, the, so the flyer flames up again. Um, and that's kind of a great image of, of the enchantment of the world where we have um, this material bird and the material wind and the material trees around it, but there's so much more going on there. Um, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. So he's talking about how great it's, it's flying. That's what, such an achievement, such a mastery as it's doing that, as it's pulling it off. Um, so this is the enchanted world that I'm talking about. Um, and so I would encourage you to explore this enchanted world. Um, we'll be exploring it as we go through these Christian authors, these Christian intellectual authors, coming up with Alistair McIntyre, uh, Jamie Smith, Charles Taylor. Um, and, you know, just one of the things to know, like, here we have in this world um, so much great Christian intellectual thought. And in a way, I sort of feel like I work at a university, and I don't think we do a good job, or maybe it's kind of the atmosphere of the universities, it doesn't um, give us access to, or at least they're not as celebrated authors as some of the more secular authors. Um, so my goal here is to, is to bring them more into the front and center so that you can access them and see all this great intellectual work that's being done. And, and, and that, you know, here we are in this 21st century and, and Christians and Christian intellectuals are very well placed to 
to contribute to this liquid modern world, which is really starving for, for spirit and soul and heart. We've been too cerebral for so long, too focused on the individual, on, on satisfying my autonomous desires and not enough um, of a community and on, on nature, on being inspired by, by moral beauty, by physical beauty. Um, this is what we're going for. And, and, and so this is our adventure and I invite you to participate in it as we continue ahead. Thank you. Thank you.